Congressman Tim Bachet believes that crashed UFOs have been retrieved and studied, but have not been successfully reverse engineered. Remote viewing underground bases, ETs, and inner Earth civilizations. Historical photos of small UFOs entering cigar-shaped craft gaining new significance. Space Force sends its first guardian into space, but is he truly the first? The US National Archives creates its official rules for the collection of UFO records from US military and government agencies. Does the former NOAA director, Rear Admiral Tim Gallaudet, belief in non-human intelligence derived from secret briefings about undersea extraterrestrial bases? Greece becomes the 35th nation to sign the Artemis Accords, thereby cementing US leadership in space affairs for decades to come. These and other stories on Exopolitics Today, the week in review. You're listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala, your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global, and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala. Welcome to the Week in Review for Exopolitics Today. So we've got quite a few stories to cover for this February 10 edition. So I want to begin with a story concerning Congressman Tim Burchett, where he discusses the economic implications of UFO disclosure. So this is on the website Global Intel Hub. And uh, here he did a sit-down interview with the uh, convener, uh, the creator of the Global Intelligence Hub, who specializes in economic and investment affairs. And he's very interested in the future concerning the disclosure of the UFO issue and secret space programs and what the economic impact of that is going to be. And in his interview with Congressman Bichette, it was clear that Congressman Bichette believes that uh, UFO craft have been indeed recovered and studied, but he is very firm in the belief that they have not been successfully reverse engineered. And that goes against uh, the base of many interviews I've had with uh, secret space program insiders and witnesses. And of course, many disclosure project witnesses that believe that there is a secret space program that has been in operation for decades with a fully functional reverse engineered flying saucer, flying triangle, flying rectangle craft. So Timber Ship, unfortunately, believes all of that is, is, is uh, disinformation. I think that is part of the kind of limited hangout that he and other congressmen are being spoon-fed by people associated with um, uh, the, the whole ATIP program, the Soul Foundation. And there is this uh, effort uh, to, to really push this narrative that UFOs have been studied, have been retrieved and studied, that non-human intelligence exists. But no, we haven't reverse engineered these. Unfortunately, uh, Congressman Burchette is putting out that information. And uh, that's unfortunate because I think he really is well-intentioned. I think he genuinely wants to get to the bottom of this. But he's been told a lie. Uh, and I think that the other people 
that are pushing that narrative. Uh, I think people like uh, David Grush, uh, people like George Knapp, Jeremy Corbell, uh, the, the the whole ATIP, the whole uh, people behind the Soul Foundation, I think a lot of them probably believe that these craft have been recovered, but they're too advanced to be reverse engineered. Uh, and as I said, that goes against uh, the flow of information we've been getting from from many others saying that uh, indeed they have been successfully reverse engineered. Well, here's an interview I did with uh, the remote viewer John Vivanco concerning some of the targets that he has focused on during his uh, over 25 years as a remote viewer. He's, he's gained very excellent results in his remote viewing, which is essential if you're going to become a professional remote viewer. No one's going to pay a, um, a an unsuccessful, inaccurate remote viewer. But if you are accurate and that is something that major corporations are interested in, then they will pay you. And so that's how he was able to survive for many decades as a remote viewer. And he has a very interesting kind of history in the field. But in this interview, this is our second interview that we've done. Uh, he's done hundreds of remote viewing on various uh, classified or kind of like very highly sensitive subjects or topics such as underground bases, extraterrestrial life and inner earth civilizations. And what he did discuss was uh, these remote viewings he did of uh, Mount Hayes in Alaska and Mount Zeal in Australia, where he confirmed the earlier remote viewing data from uh, a very successful remote viewer, Pat Price, saying that there were underground facilities there, major underground facilities. And um, just to kind of like give you an idea of how serious that was in terms of uh, Pat Price discovering that was that soon after he made that uh, discovery and revealed that to a few other remote viewers and his uh, superiors, uh, he died. He was dead. And, and, and it's become clear for those that have pursued this story that uh, he was killed because he was too accurate. So this is the thing about remote viewing. In, in one way, it's publicly ridiculed by government agencies, but on the other hand, those same government agencies will eliminate anyone who is too accurate. And it's all done um, behind the scenes. Now, what's very interesting here is that he also uh, did a remote viewing of a set of coordinates I gave him from uh, JP, the Army Insider, who has revealed to me in the past that uh, the, the existence of underground bases and and also he's given sometimes coordinates by people uh, within his covert leadership uh, concerning some of these underground facilities. And so he was given these coordinates and you can check them for yourself on Google Earth. Uh, 78 degrees, 51 minutes, 15 seconds south, and 160 degrees, 70 minutes, 55 uh, seconds east. And uh, sure enough, John Bavanko found that there was something there, that there was something underground. So that's uh, 
uh, important corroboration for uh, JP's uh, data. Uh, we also discussed some of John Vivanco's remote viewing of um, the life and death of Jesus or Yeshua, and he found that the Shroud of Turin is an absolutely genuine historical record uh, from someone, presumably Yeshua or Jesus, going through a transfiguration or, or an elevation into the rainbow body. So a fascinating interview with uh, John Vivanco. Okay, so here's where we get into a important piece of history that is very relevant today. Um, in uh, this is a story about a something that was declassified by the um, U.S. Air Force Air Intelligence Center that was covered in a 1960 article, and this is what it says, and I'll just read it out. At a speed of 5,240 miles per hour, the smaller sources sped towards the big one and seemed to slip inside of it. Like rowboats taken aboard a mothership in the Atlantic, the enormous vehicle picked up speed and soared away, tracked on radar at 9,000 miles per hour. The pilot, radar officer and crew members agreed fully in their reports. The radar was functioning perfectly, standing alone. This case strongly indicated that the smaller sources were indeed under remote control, relaunched launched and recovered by motherships. Moreover, evidence was increasing that sources employed anti-gravity devices for all of their manoeuvring, suggesting a complete freedom from the tug and hindrance of gravitation. So this was a story that was printed in 1960 that uh, derived from uh, information from the U.S. Air Force Air Intelligence Center that had been earlier released in uh, the early uh, 1950s. So very remarkable historical information about motherships uh, being in the vicinity of a lot of these flying sources that were being photographed. So what that brought to mind was this George Adamski photo of here you have a cigar-shaped craft and this and there you have five flying saucers around it so that was may 29 1950 so this photo has never been debunked i mean you have a lot of people uh debunking george adamski criticizing him saying he's a phony he's he's hoax even many legitimate ufo researchers do that um, and they're wrong. I mean, Adamski was genuine. He was genuinely having experiences with extraterrestrials, or, or let's just say he was having interactions with the occupants of these flying saucer and cigar-shaped craft. Now, whether they were extraterrestrials or whether they were Germans that were part of a dark fleet or part of the uh, Maria Osic faction of the German secret space program, uh, it, it, we can kind of leave that open for debate, but <clears throat> clearly Adamski was having these experiences and he was able to take photographs that have never been genuinely debunked, even though people will say they were. So very important because today we are in a situation where we have these motherships. They've been reported by multiple 
sources, and I've discussed some of those sources on my channel and in previous weeks in review, and and of course the uh, the military and the deep state are desperately trying to keep this covered up. They they don't want people to know of what's going up there, which is very interesting given what I'm going to be showing you a little bit later about a uh, an, an advertisement by Martin Scorsese that's going to be shown on tomorrow's Super Bowl. So Super Bowl Sunday, um, they're going to show an ad at some point. Okay, so here we have a story uh, concerning uh, US Space Command. And, and this is where we have the United States Space Force has made the announcement to send one of its guardians, that's what it calls its uh, service members. Um, so the Air Force calls calls its service member, airmen, uh, the Navy calls them, call, calls their service members. Um, uh, sorry, but let me go. Blanking on that one. The Navy calls the seamen. That's right, seamen. Um, the Army, soldiers, Marines, Marines, so forth. And so the um, the Space Force calls its service members guardians. So the, so the Space Force is celebrating that it's going to send its first guardian into space. Now, the presumption here is that he truly is the first guardian in space, but is he? Uh, because what we know uh, from the testimony of people like JP, uh, who's currently serving in the US Army, is that Space Command selects members of the different military services for covert missions into space. So that means that in addition to JP and uh, others that have been co-opted into these uh, covert missions, there have pre presumably been a number of Space Force guardians that have gone up into space as part of these covert space missions that JP's participated in, but officially that has not been acknowledged. So that means that this guardian, Nick Haig, uh, is presumably the first, but in fact, we can be very certain that uh, there have been others before him. Okay, so here is a uh, announcement concerning the National Archives teeing up new rules for UFO records. So here is the National Archives that has started to put into effect uh, the uh, provisions that were uh, created under the uh, National Defence Authorization Act for 2024, where it now sets up a UFO records collection and it is approaching all the different military services and government agencies saying, hey, do you guys have any UFO records? If you do, you should send them to us because now we are in the process of setting up a archives collection, which is a good thing. It's a positive thing because currently if you want UFO records, you, you've got to approach all of the different military services or government agencies that might have that. So if you suspect, uh, well, let's just say, uh, you think that maybe there's there's records data that was collected uh, concerning, say, a UFO uh, UFO sighting near a military base. You know, you might approach that military base. Just say it's an Air Force base. So you approach the Air Force saying, "Hey, I want to know on such and such a date what records you have 
pursuant to this UFO sighting. You might have to approach the FAA to do the same thing. Um, you might find out that there they were, say, some Navy test flights in the area. So you need to approach the Navy. And this can go back many, many decades. So the advantage of this um, UFO records collection that's being set up under the National Archives is that you can just go to the one place, the National Archives, and they will, if they don't have that in its in its possession, then it can go through the process of ensuring that any government entity that has those records has released those. Presumably that as long as that record has not been classified uh, for non-release because it, it concerns some national security um, imperative. So typically after 25 years, all UFO records do have to be released and the National Archives, once they are released, will make these available to the public. So it's a step in the right direction. Uh, it's a small step, not, not nothing really major compared to what could have been the case with the UAP uh, Disclosure Act, uh, but that was gutted and from the carcass of that UAP records collection, now you have this uh, UFO or UAP records uh, collection that is being set up by the National Archives. Okay, so here is this um, in a, or this uh, this ad advertisement that's going to be showing up on um, Super Bowl Sunday. And it, it concerns uh, UFOs uh, wanting to get the attention of the world public. And, and of course, people are, are focused on their iPhones and smart devices, and they're not looking up into the sky. So the, the ad is a very clever ad. It was put together by Martin Scorsese. So he's a major uh, media uh, personage. And it shows that someone is wanting us to start paying attention to motherships because this is what the ad is showing, motherships. So remember earlier I said uh, you go back into the 1950s, those motherships photos that Adamski had taken and that um, record that had been declassified from the US Air Force concerning flying sources entering a mothership. All of that has been ridiculed for, for decades. Now we have major media figures involved in a program to get us to pay attention to motherships. And this is exactly the time when I've been um, interviewing uh, contactees, witnesses, insiders, saying that the motherships are here, that we've got these huge motherships in orbit around the Earth, uh, that these space arcs are about to start to fly up, and someone wants us to pay attention to all of this. Now, why is that? Um, is it because uh, the major media wanting us to pay attention to this? Is it because they are interested in kind of like preparing us or shaping our perceptions, public perceptions, so that uh, we are ready to be manipulated in some way? My guess is that it is some kind of manipulation. Now, is it a manipulation in the sense of a global UFO threat, part of a false flag operation? Or is it because they're wanting to set up a new galactic religion where uh, Pope Francis and the Catholic Church is front and centre in the creation of that. So, so I think this is why the deep state is wanting to push this. But on the other hand, the, the 
positive extraterrestrials associated with the motherships, the space arcs, uh, the, that is inevitable because humanity's consciousness is rising, people want the truth to come out, and so they will be showing themselves at some point. So the deep state wants to get in, wants to get ahead of that. So I, I think that's what this ad is all about. So I do look forward to seeing how that plays out uh, over the over the uh, Super Bowl uh, Sunday. Okay, so here we have a. Oops, let's be, let me go back. I think there's something I wanted to discuss before that. Yeah, here we go. So this is the latest episode on Weaponized with Jeremy Corbell and George Knapp. And they lay out a solid case for how Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, uh, the former director of the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, that's Arrow, prejudiced the Arrow Office from the beginning from conducting any impartial investigations into the UFO phenomenon uh, because he was uh, really, he had great antipathy to the field. Uh, and, and that was something that was well known even before he became the Arrow director. So they're very skeptical, Knapp and Corbell, they're very skeptical that this upcoming Arrow historical review of UFO cases will amount to much because of the uh, negative role that Sean Kirkpatrick played behind the scenes with running the Arrow office and what has become clear of his bold-faced lies concerning uh, whistleblower testimonies, that he has actually um, been very deceptive when it comes to the whistleblowers that have come forward and spoken to his office or to him personally about what they know of UFOs. And, and this is a article in the Liberation Times that uh, Corbell and Knapp described uh, that is a very good uh, analysis of Kirkpatrick's undermining of the Arrow Office as a trustworthy institution that would impartially investigate UFO reports and whistleblower testimonies. So this is a, a really uh, fine article. I mean, if you haven't read it, The Empire Strikes Back by Christopher Sharp in the Liberation Times. I mean, he really does a fine job in showing exactly how Sean Kirkpatrick undermined the Arrow office because of his own personal antipathy to the UFO issue. So well worth uh, reading that particular article. Okay, so here we get a historical, some historical film footage of John Northrop, and he is the uh, aviation inventor who started up the Northrop Corporation, um, and and that is that in time was incorporated into what today is known as Northrop Grumman, uh, which is one of the uh, major U.S. aerospace uh, companies that builds all kinds of uh, aircraft, uh, aircraft uh, carriers, and also secret space program vehicles for the secret space program. So John Northrop, uh, he, in this interview, uh, he discusses his interest in the UFO issue and his development of the B-49 flying wing and, and that was uh, something that was developed 
uh, in the late 1940s, early 1950s, and it was revolutionary for its time, but it was uh, repressed. It was actually that particular project was crushed. Um, and, and what this interview does is that it describes how the Northrop, uh, John Northrop, uh, was able to build this craft uh, because of his innovative understanding of aerodynamics. But what's not well known is that uh, John Northrop, actually, he was a recipient of these top secret briefing documents that were being circulated to top aerospace uh, corporations by William Tompkins, who was part of a uh, Navy espionage program to reveal to major US corporations and defense institutes some of the Nazi Germany's uh, covert flying saucer projects. So the, so the Navy was disseminating these briefing documents to anyone capable of understanding the principles behind flying saucers, anti-gravity, flying wings, and so forth. And I, I and William Tompkins, who I've worked with, uh, who I worked with since he uh, went public, uh, it was in uh, 2016 when I first began to work with him. And he released his book, uh, Selected by Extraterrestrials. And based on our interviews and the information he released, I, I wrote the book, uh, The US Navy's Secret Space Program. And he was quite clear that uh, major, major inventors such as John Northrop did receive these briefing packets. So I, I think we could probably be reasonably confident that John Northrop was someone who did receive a briefing packet with information on flying wings and, of course, UFOs, and that uh, this inspired him to come up with his B-49 flying wing design, which was incredibly innovative at the time. And, and of course, I mean, you have to go uh, forward now, 30 years, of, you know, from the late 40s up until the early 1980s where you have the B-2 bomber, the first flying wing officially. So why did why did the Air Force have to wait for 30 years? Well, the reason was that Northrop's uh, B-49 uh, program was uh, squashed by the US Air Force Secretary, Stuart Symington. Now, Stuart Symington is a very sinister figure uh, because uh, he was the person that actually went to visit John Forrestal, the very first Secretary of the Department of Defense, James Forrestal, and spoke to him confidentially. And according to what happened afterwards, uh, James Forrestal had a, a nervous breakdown and, and he was sacked as the Secretary of Defense based on what Symington had said to him. And, and I think what Symington had to say was along the lines of the Majestic 12 group wanting to maintain secrecy indefinitely and wanting to slow down the rate at which some of these innovative technologies were going to be released into the general public. I think people like J Secretary James Forrestal wanted to release the technology as quickly as possible, 
uh, brief the public that, yeah, we've recovered some extraterrestrial craft. Yes, that the Nazis had developed uh, their own flying saucer craft. And yes, they've developed a, a base in Antarctica. So Forrestal wanted to make those kinds of revelations. He was shut down by the Majestic 12 group. And uh, Stuart Symington was the, the guy acting on behalf of the Majestic 12 group to silence Forrestal. And the sinister thing about it was that soon after Forrestal's um, nervous breakdown and removal as Secretary of Defence in 1949, only months later, he allegedly suicided himself and fell from, I think it was the 16th floor of the Naval, of the Bethesda Naval Medical Facility. So that was, um, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we get an idea of, of just how some of these advanced technologies not only have been suppressed from the general public, but also suppressed from the conventional military. That's what this was all about. The B-49, it would have brought the um, aviation, uh, the military aviation industry a couple of decades ahead of schedule. It would have led to advances a couple of decades of where we are now. But there were people behind the scenes presumably working with the Antarctica-based German breakaway civilization that didn't want that, that wanted any breakthroughs that were going to happen, that they would only happen in covert projects, not in public projects through uh, major aerospace companies like uh, Northrop. Okay, so here is an announcement concerning my webinar that I did a week ago on February 3rd, what's coming in 2024, Catastrophic Disclosure, it is now on Vimeo. So if you go to my Vimeo page, uh, it, it will be there and you can, you can watch it. It won't have the Q&A. If you want to watch the original webinar with the Q&A, then you'll have to go and register through Crowdcast. But if you just want to watch the webinar itself, uh, we, we did some some enhancements of it, uh, but it won't have the Q&A. You can go to Vimeo, and so you can get the details from my homepage, uh, exopolitics.org. It's there in the shop if you want to pursue that. Okay, so here is something that I thought was very interesting. Uh, this was a Forbes article. Uh, and there have been a number of articles talking about an ocean found under the Death Star or one of the moons of Saturn called Mimas uh, looks like the Death Star because it has, there you have it, you have a, a kind of like a, a big crater there that looks like the Death Star from Star Wars. So what's interesting here is that there has been uh, insider testimony that the Saturnian moon Mimas actually is a major base for a United Nations-run secret space program. So definitely partial, uh, partial I mean, that is uh, corroboration for uh, claims of uh, Mimas being used as a major base by a United Nations-run secret space program. And I first heard of that United Nations secret space program back in 2015. And there have been others since then that talk about this. But uh, in this case, uh, the moon Mimas was singled out as, the, as one of the bases for this. So very, very interesting development.
Okay, so here we have Rear Admiral Tim Gallaudet. He um, here's a clip that only runs for 10, uh, 10 seconds. And what he's saying here is that he is uh, believes that uh, non-human intelligence exists, that non-human intelligence had been recovered. And the question is, how did he develop this belief? Where did he get this conviction that the government has made contact with non-human intelligence? Well, this is where his position as the acting director of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, comes in. Uh, and I believe he was uh, the acting director of NOAA up until 2019. So I'm not quite sure how long that was. But, I mean, I have interviewed several individuals, and I think I mentioned uh, JP, yes, and Jean-Charles Moyen, uh, the, the French-Canadian uh, 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 insider, shall we say, who was part of a joint French-US secret space program, and JP is currently serving on some of these covert missions. Uh, both of them have described going to undersea bases that are part of a non-human civilization. In other words, non-surface humanity. Now, uh, this could be an extraterrestrial colony that has been in place at the bottom of the ocean for uh, decades or centuries, or it could be the remnants of um, ancient civilizations like Atlantis or even earlier that have been at the bottom of the ocean for, for millennia. So nevertheless, I think uh, Tim Gallaudet probably formed his opinions based on some of the things that he learned as the NOAA director, because the Earth is covered, I think 70% of our Earth is ocean. So the NOAA director, uh, he would be very familiar with events happening under the oceans. And there have been multiple insiders, witnesses describing ancient bases under the oceans. So I think we could probably reasonably conclude that uh, Gallaudet did get a briefing. Okay, so here's the final story I want to cover for this uh, week in review, which is Greece becoming the 35th signatory to the US-led uh, Artemis Accords. So the Artemis Accords, uh, these are bilateral agreements reached between the US and currently 34 other nations. So the metaphor is think of the, sp uh, the spokes in a wheel, a bicycle wheel, and at the center, the hub of that is uh, NASA, and the other th the 34 spokes around that, that hub go to different nations, whether we're talking France, uh, Germany, Japan, Britain, Australia, and so forth. So, this, so Greece becomes the 34th spoke in that. And the reason Greece joined that is because uh, the Greeks, as well as the other signatories, all, all understand that the US is going to remain the dominant space power for decades to come. That the US, uh, both publicly and behind the scenes in terms of classified projects, they are the, the leaders in space. Other countries like China want to be the leader. 
uh, are desperately trying to develop their own alternatives, but these are struggling. Uh, so, for example, uh, China has, has set up its own lunar research project, but it's only it's only gained um, eight countries. So the Lunar Research Station has eight countries, and, and that includes some very small countries that are, hardly have any kind of space resources at all. Uh, so uh, I, I think that the Artemis Accords are the civilian face of what is going to become a future Starfleet. That, that's the civilian face. The military face of that is this joint space uh, operations or space command operations uh, initiative that is being created where the US space command is working with the space commands of other major nations and they are creating a military uh, presence or coalition in space that will be there to protect Artemis Accords signatories because the Artemis Accords they have provisions in there talking about safety zones. So any signatory to the Artemis Accords, uh, it's like they have a guarantee that they go out into space, they, fu they fund a joint project, say they want to fund a lunar mining project, so they send facilities or operations to the moon and they're mining the moon or whatever, um, and, and that can be declared a safety zone because the Artemis Accord nations are working there. Now, if a rival nation like China or someone else even extraterrestrial, threatens that safety zone, then that's when uh, Space Command comes in with other the other military uh, space operations from allied nations that are part of that, which will become Starfleet, especially once we get the existence of the uh, secret space programs being publicly acknowledged. And we're in the process of that. And I think this is like throughout the, the rest of this decade, up until 2030, I think is where we're going to have uh, the existence of these secret space programs being revealed through the expansion of Space Force and Space Command. And all of that is going to be done uh, in parallel with the expansion of the Artemis Accords. So that's it for this week in review. Uh, we are really at the kind of like precipice of some fascinating events for the rest of this year. And I look forward to presenting the latest developments in exopolitics to you next week. So I look forward to seeing you then. And don't forget, uh, the my most recent webinar is now available on Vimeo. So thank you for watching. And don't forget to uh, like and, and share this uh, video so that it can uh, break the YouTube algorithms trying to censor this kind of um, disclosure. Thank you and aloha. You have been listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit exopoliticstoday.com.